Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Section 19 of The Gleam in the North by D.K. Proster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Eileen. Keith Wyndham's Mother. 1. A gentleman to see you, sir, said the voice, not of Ewan's landlady, Mrs. Wilson, but of the impish boy from the vintner's shop below. And, coming nearer, he added confidentially, How oh, he ain't given no name, but he's mighty fine, a lord belike. Where is he, then? Show him in at once, ordered Ewan, picturing Mr. Galbraith, the only person save Hector, likely to call at this morning hour, left standing at the top of the stairs. And yet, what should make the soberly attired Mr. Galbraith mighty fine at this time of day? But the impish boy's diagnosis was exactly correct. The young gentleman who entered was fine, though not so fine as last night. And he was a lord. Ewan went forward amazed, and despite the peaceful termination to last night's encounter, Viscount Aveling was the last person he should have expected to walk into his humble apartment. "'I'm not intruding, I hope, Mr. Cameron, visiting you thus early,' inquired the young man in the voice which was so like his dead brother's. "'I wish to make sure that you would keep your promise of waiting upon my father this afternoon, for he is genuinely anxious to afford you any assistance in his power. Yet I feared that you might be kept away by the memory of my—my my exceedingly inhospitable behaviour last night.' All the frank and boyish charm which had formed the essence of Ewan's first impression of him was back, more than back. Oh, I assure you, my lord, replied Ewan warmly, and that any memories of that sort were drowned in the glass of wine we took together. I shall most gratefully wait upon Lord Stowe at any hour convenient to him. But will you not be seated? Oh, it is exceedingly good of you to have come upon this errand. Lord Aveling laid down his tasselled cane upon the table, and lifting the full skirts of his murray-coloured coat out of the way, complied. Oh, "'I do not think that Lord Stowe can promise much, Mr. Cameron,' he said, "'and it may be that any step will take time. But I believe that strong feeling is being aroused by the sentence, which is a hopeful sign. My father was himself present when judgment was given, and was much impressed, as I was, by Dr. Cameron's bearing.' Oh, everyone seems to have been at the court of kings bent, but I, said Ewan sadly. Oh, yet surely, objected the young man, it would have been very painful for you, Mr. Cameron, to hear the details of that sentence, which sound so barbarous and cold-blooded when enumerated beforehand, and I must own that the Lord Chief Justice hurled them, as it were, at the unfortunate gentleman with what seemed more like animus on his part than a due judicial severity. Yes. I've already been told that, said Ewan. Yet I should have seen my kinsman had I been present, even though I could not have had speech with him. That, I knew, 
would be too much to expect in the case of a state prisoner. It is I, alas, he added with a sudden impulse towards confidence, who am, in a measure at least, responsible for his capture. Oh, my dear Mr. Cameron, exclaimed young Aveling, with vivacity, considering how you moved heaven and earth to warn him, and that you, if I guess rightly, were the man struck down defending him, how can you say that? Oh, because it was I who suggested our taking refuge in the fatal hut in which he was captured, answered Ewan with a sigh. Oh, I should like to hear him say that he forgives me for that. But I must be content with knowing in my heart that he does. Lord Aveling was looking grave. You have touched, Mr. Cameron, on the other reason which brought me here. It seems to me that you are going openly about London without a thought of your own safety. But you must be a marked man, if any note were made, at the time of Dr. Cameron's capture, of your personal appearance, of your uncommon height, for instance. Have you taken any precautions against recognition? Oh, what precautions could I take? asked Ewan simply. Oh, I can only hope that no such note was made. After all, I am of no importance to the government, and, as it happened, I did not even touch a single soldier. My weapon broke, or, rather, it came to pieces. Oh, I should call that fortunate, observed his visitor with the same gravity. Oh, I suppose it was, since I must have been overpowered in the end, and there were too many of them. Oh, I think I am singularly fortunate, he added, with the same simplicity. Last night, for instance, Lord Aveling, oh, I am still at a loss to know why you changed your mind, and did not carry out your threat, and showed besides so much generosity to me, and helped instead of hindering me with my request to Lord Stowe. The blood showed easily on Aveling's almost girl-like complexion. He rose and resumed his cane, saying, meanwhile, Oh, if you do not guess why you turned my purpose. Oh, but no, why should you? It would be out of keeping. I'll tell you some day. And here he hesitated, half turned, turned back again, and then, fingering with deep interest the tassels of his cane, said in a lower tone, you have a secret of mine, Mr. Cameron. I hope I can rely upon you to preserve it as such. How oh, a secret of yours, my lord, exclaimed Ewan in surprise. And then a flush spread over his face also, and he became more embarrassed than his visitor. Oh, you mean that letter? Oh, lord Aveling, if I were to spend the rest of my life apologizing. Now oh, I do not desire you to do that, sir interrupted the young lover, now poking with his cane at one of Mrs. Wilson's chairs, to the considerable detriment of its worn covering. We have closed that chapter. Nevertheless, he stopped. Oh, then at least believe me, put in Ewan earnestly, and that anything I may have had the misfortune to read is as though I'd never seen it. The young man ceased stabbing the chair. Oh, I thank you, Mr. Cameron, and I have no hesitation in relying upon that assurance. Nevertheless, since you are shortly to wait upon my father, it is well that you should know that, though the lady has consented to my unworthy suit, oh, my parents, oh, that is to say, my mother. Again he stopped. 
that you unbound. You honour me with your confidence, my lord. And indeed, as he felt, the way in which he had earned it was sufficiently singular. Oh, my mother, went on Lord Aveling, after a second or two, has, I know, other views for me. Oh, I doubt if she suspects this attachment, but of my father's suspicions I am not so sure, yet he may very well give his consent to the match. And as for me, here he threw back his head and looked Ewan, if not in the face, yet very nearly. As for me, my heart is immutably fixed, though at present I find it more politic to say nothing as yet, of pledges which I am firmly resolved never to relinquish until they are exchanged for more solemn vows at the altar. Ewan bowed again, rather touched at this lofty declaration, which promised well for the happiness of Miss Georgina Churchill. Oh, there's no conceivable reason, my lord, why any member of your family should suppose me aware of this attachment. I know, that is true, said his visitor, and you must forgive me for troubling you at such a time with my affairs. And now, if you'll excuse me, I'll take my leave. I do not fail to wait upon my father, Mr. Cameron, and if you should get into trouble with the authorities over your doings in that glen, whose name I still cannot remember, he added, with a half-shy, half-mocking smile. I send for your humble servant. And he bowed himself out of the door. The room was the darker for his going. When Ewan had recovered from the surprise of this visit, he went out in search of Hector, who was sufficiently amazed at the tale of his brother-in-law's doings on the previous night. Oh, but the fact remains, was his summing up, that you have made an exceedingly useful friend in the Earl of Stowe, not to speak of the young lord. And your own investigations as to the source of that slander, Hector, how are they going? Hector frowned. Oh, not at all. It is a ticklish matter to investigate, and to ask men, for instance, if they have suspicions of you. Of that I can well believe. Promise me that you will do nothing rash, and that you will take no serious step without consulting me. Oh, don't, for God's sake, get involved in a dispute just now, Hector. Oh, you must forgive me for lecturing you, but you know that you have a hot temper. Yes, agreed Hector Grant with surprising meekness. I know that I have. And you know it too, Ewan, none better. I will be careful. On Ewan's return to Half Moon Street, Mrs. Wilson was prompt to call his attention to an elegant coroneted note lying on his table. A blackamoor boy brought it soon after you was gone out, sir. One of them the quality has. The note was from the Countess of Stowe, Stowe House seeming to favour the vintner's abode that day. Oh, dear Mr. Cameron, ran the delicate writing, I understand that you will be having an interview with Lord Stowe this afternoon. Oh, pray do not depart without giving me the pleasure of your company. My son has told me something of you, which makes me greatly desire to see you as soon as possible. Be good enough, ere you depart, to ask to be conducted to my boudoir. How strange it was! How strange! He might have been going to meet Keith in that boudoir, instead of telling his mother about the circumstances of their friendship and his death. For that, of course, was why Lady Stowe wished to have speech with him. 2. The Earl of Stowe received the Highlander in his own study that afternoon, 
He was extremely gracious, made many references to his rescue and to his gratitude, announced that, after reflection, he had come to the conclusion that the government would certainly do well to spare the life of so amiable and humane a gentleman as Dr. Cameron appeared to be, and that he should use his utmost endeavours to persuade them to do so. He could not, naturally, say what success would attend his efforts, and he warned his visitor not to be too sanguine. Yet a great deal of public interest and sympathy was undoubtedly being aroused by the case. For his part, he had been very favourably impressed by the Jacobite's appearance and by his manly and decent bearing on a most trying occasion. You, I understand, Mr. Cameron, were not able to be present in the King's bench when he was sentenced. My son made a suggestion to me with regard to that after seeing you this morning. I fancy, from what he said, that you would be gratified if I could procure you an order to visit Dr. Cameron in the Tower. How oh, gratified! exclaimed Ewan, in a tone which left no doubt of the fact. Oh, my lord, you would be repaying my trifle of assistance last night a hundred times over. How does your lordship mean that? Oh, certainly I do, replied his lordship, and I think that it is a matter within my power, since I know Lord Cornwallis somewhat well. Today is Friday. I will try to procure you an order for next Monday. But if it is granted, you would, I fear, have to submit to a search on entering the tower, for I understand that they are keeping Dr. Cameron very strictly. Ewan intimated that that process would not deter him, and, thanking the Earl almost with tears in his eyes, prepared to withdraw, a little uncertain about his next step. Was Lord Stowe, for instance, aware that the Countess also wished to see his visitor? Yes, fortunately, for he was saying so and you will excuse me if I do not myself take you to my lady, an enemy who, I trust, will not attack you for many years, yet is threatening me today, and just at present I am using this foot as little as possible. It was with a wry smile that the Earl hobbled to the bell-pole. A large portrait of Aveling as a ravishingly beautiful child, playing with a spaniel, hung over the fireplace in Lady Stowe's boudoir, Another of him as a young man was on the wall opposite to the door, while a miniature of a boy who could only have been he stood conspicuously on a table among various delicate trifles in porcelain or ivory. All these Ewan saw, while looking eagerly round for some memento of his dead friend, of which he could detect no trace. Then a door at the other end of the warm, perfumed room opened, and the mistress of the place came in regally tall, in dove-grey lute-string, the black ribbon, with its single dangling pearl, which clasped her slender throat, defining the still perfect contour of her little chin. A famous toast, who could afford to dress simply, even when she had a mind to a fresh conquest. Oh, Mr. Cameron, this is kind of you, she said, as he bent over her hand. Save Alison's, he had heard no sweeter voice. Oh, it is even generous, for I fear that your reception by my son last night was not what it should have been, considering the debt we all owe you. Wondering not a little what explanation Lord Aveling has subsequently given his mother of his behaviour, Ewan replied that the difference which had unfortunately arisen between them in Scotland had quite justified Lord Aveling's coldness, but that they had afterwards come to a complete understanding. 
"'So my lord told me,' said the countess, "'and, indeed, my son also. "'But he was mysterious, as young men delight to be. "'How I know not whether you disagreed over the weather, "'or politics, or over the usual subject, a woman.' "'Here she flashed a smiling glance at him. "'But I see, Mr. Cameron, that you are not going to tell me. "'How therefore it was the last. "'Oh, I hope she was worth it.' If it had been a woman, replied her visitor, surely your son's choice, Lady Stowe, would have been such as you would have approved. However, our difference was over something quite other. You will remember that I do not share Lord Aveling's political allegiances. Lady Stowe smiled. How oh, I suppose I must be content with that, and put away the suspicion that you fell out over a sharing an allegiance which was not political. As to that, my lady, said Ewan, I give you my word of honour. Entirely wrong as she was in her diagnosis, the remembrance of that love-letter made him very wishful to leave the dangerous proximity of Miss Georgina Churchill, lest by any look or word he should betray the secret he had so discreditably learnt and so faithfully sworn to keep. Oh, but you are standing all this while, exclaimed Lady Stowe. How oh, be seated, I pray. "'Have you seen my lord, and is he able to do what you wish?' "'His lordship has been most kind, and promised to use his influence,' said Ewan as he obeyed, extremely relieved at the change of subject. "'And knowing that influence to be great, I have proportionate hopes. Oh, "'You must command me, too, if there's anything that I can do,' said the countess softly. "'How oh, the Princess Amelia might be approached, for instance. No stone must be left unturned.' Oh, but fortunately, there's a good while yet. Oh, do you know many people in London, Mr. Cameron? Ewan replied that he did not, that he had never been there before, though he knew Paris well. Ah, there you have the advantage of me, sir, observed his hostess. Oh, I've never been to Paris. It must by all accounts be a prodigious fine city. Oh, do you know the ambassador, the Earl of Albemarle? No, my lady, not as an ambassador, at least. He was in command at Fort Augustus when I was a prisoner there in the summer of forty-six, but I never saw him. He wanted to talk about Keith Wyndham, not to exchange banalities about Paris and diplomats, and hoped that a reference to the Rising might bring about this consummation. In a measure, it did. Lady Stowe turned her powdered head away for a moment. Ah, yes, I remember, she said in a low voice. It was the Earl who gave my unfortunate elder son and the commission which led to his death. Aveling has told me the story which he had from you. Now, no need to repeat it, Mr. Cameron, for the recital must be painful to you also. And, and to a mother, how oh, you can guess, her firstborn murdered. She was unable to continue. She put a frail handkerchief with a scent like some dream of lilies for an instant to her mouth and Ewan could see that her beautiful eyes were full of tears. And he pictured Alison, or, for the matter of that, himself, bereaved by violent means of Donald. He began to say, with deep feeling, how good of her it was to receive him, saying that he had been, in a sense, the cause of Major Wyndham's death, and once again the moonlit sands of Mora blotted out for a second what was before his eyes. Oh, I was wholly devoted to him, went on Keith's mother, in the same sweet, shaken voice. How so proud of his career, how so... 
Oh, but that must not make me unjust. It was the bee, no doubt. And I'm very glad to have you here, Mr. Cameron, and the last person who saw my dear son alive. And she looked at him with a wonderfully soft and welcoming glance, and considering what painful memories the sight of him might be supposed to call up. Who was Ewan, the least personally vain of men, and absorbed besides him far other reflections, and to guess that Lady Stowe, like old Inverna Cree, had found him the finest piece of manhood she had ever seen, and that she was wondering whether the charm, which had never yet failed her with the opposite sex, would avail to bring to her feet this tall Highlander, already bound by a sentimental tie, though not exactly the tie which a lady desirous of forgetting her years would have chosen. As she put away her handkerchief, Oh, but it is wrong and selfish, and do you not think, Mr. Cameron, and to dwell too much on painful memories. I'm sure my dear Keith would not wish to see us sad. He is happy in heaven, and it is our duty to make the best of this sometimes uncheerful world. I'm holding a small rout here upon the Thursday in next week. Will you give me the pleasure of your company at it? Ewan was conscious of the kind of jolt caused when a hitherto decorously travelling chaise goes unexpectedly over a large stone. I fear I shall be too much occupied, my lady, he stammered. Oh, I thank you, but I must devote all my time to. And now, do not say to conspiring, she admonished him, smiling. As a good wick, I shall have to denounce you if you do. If it be conspiracy to try to procure the commutation of Dr. Cameron's sentence, answered Ewan, then his lordship is conspiring also. A very true, admitted Lady Stowe. We will not, then, call it by that name. But, Mr. Cameron, you cannot spend all your time writing or presenting petitions. What do you say to coming to a small card party of my intimate friends on Monday? You can hardly hope to be accomplishing anything so soon as that. Ewan bowed. I am deeply grateful to your ladyship, but I am in hopes of an order to visit Dr. Cameron in the tower on that day. And since I do not know for what hour, the permission will be granted. Now, oh, Mr. Cameron, you are as full of engagements as any London beau. And an order for the tower. How are you going to procure that? It will not be easy. Ah, the Earl, I suppose. His Lordship has been so good as to promise to try to obtain one. Lady Stowe made a moo. Oh, I vow, I shall ask Lord Cornwallis not to grant it. Ah, nay, I was but jesting. And yet you are vastly tiresome, sir. If you should not get the order, will you promise me to come and take a hand at quadrille on Monday? I'm a poor man, Lady Stowe, with a wife and children, and cannot afford to play quadrille, replied Ewan bluntly. His hostess stared at him. Oh, you are married, and have children. Why, well, have been married these seven years, said Ewan in a tone of some annoyance. Lady Stowe was, he knew, old enough to be his mother, but that was no reason why she should think, or pretend to think him, a boy. The Countess began to laugh. How oh, I cry you mercy, sir, for having supposed you a bachelor, since it seems to displease you. Oh, tell me of your wife and children. Oh, there's little to tell, responded Ewan. At least there seemed little to tell, this fine lady. Oh, seven years, 
said her ladyship reflectively. Then you were married soon after the uh, the rising. No, during it, replied her guest. About five weeks before the Battle of Culloden. But I'm sure that this cannot interest you, my lady. Oh, on the contrary, said Lady Stowe, smiling her sweet, slow smile. Oh, and your wife, how romantical. Oh, tell me, did she seek and find you upon the battlefield? For something tells me that you were left there for dead. My wife was then in France, replied Ardroy rather shortly. Oh, but you were left upon the battlefield, pursued Lady Stowe, looking at him with fresh interest. Yes, I was, admitted Ewan, with a good deal of unwillingness. Oh, but you must forgive me for saying once more that I do not see of what interest it can be to your ladyship whether I was or no. Oh, Mr. Cameron, do not snub me so, cried the Countess. Secretly she was charmed. What man in the whole of London would have spoken to her with such uncompromising directness? Oh, I protest, I meant nothing uncomplimentary in the assumption, or rather the reverse. Few men who were so left were lucky enough to come off with their lives, remarked Ewan grimly. Oh, why? Ah, I remember hearing that it was very cold in the north then. How oh, did you suffer from the severity of the weather? Oh, I suppose I did, admitted Ardroy, though I knew little about it at the time. And it was not, for the most part, the weather which killed our wounded. But I am occupying too much of your ladyship's time, and if you will permit me, I will take my leave. And he rose from his chair with that intention. But Lady Stowe remained sitting there, looking up at him. Oh, have you taken a vow never to speak of your past life, Mr. Cameron? For I protest that you are singularly uncommunicative, which is, I believe, a trait of your countrymen from the lowlands. Oh, that provokes a woman, you know, for she is naturally all curiosity about persons in whom she is interested. And in your case, too, there's a link with my poor Keith. Oh, did you tell him nothing? Oh, it was about him, not myself, that I came to talk, was almost upon Ewan's lips, but he kept the remark unuttered. If Keith's mother wanted to know more about his past history, he supposed he must gratify the desire. Moreover, he was afraid that he had taken up a churlish attitude towards this gracious and beautiful lady. He had not yet got over the jolt. So he tried to make amends. I fear that I am being extremely uncivil, and that you will think me very much a barbarian, Lady Stowe. Anything that you care to hear about me, I am very ready to tell you. And in exchange, you will, perhaps, if I do not ask too much, tell me something of Major Wyndham. I knew so little of his past life. The Countess of Stowe studied him as he stood there in her boudoir, nothing of the barbarian about him, save, perhaps, his stalwart height. He would evidently come to see her to talk about her dead son, though he would not come to a rout or a tea party. Ah, very well, then. And for how many occasions could she make her reminiscences of Keith last out? Oh, there must not be too many served up at each meeting. And would those deep blue eyes look at her again with that appealing gaze? On such a strong face, that fleeting expression held an irresistible charm. But then, so had his very different air when she tried to make him speak of what he had no mind to. Like a true connoisseur, 
Lady Stowe decided to cut short the present interview in order to have the pleasure of looking forward to others. She glanced at the Cupid-supported clock on the mantelpiece, gave an exclamation, and rose. Oh, I had forgotten the time. I must go and dress. How then, is it a bargain, Mr. Cameron? Who you'll come again and hear of my poor boy? Come at any time when you're not conspiring, and I will give orders that you shall be instantly admitted. That is, if I am without company. You shall not, since you do not wish it, find yourself in the midst of any gatherings. Nor indeed, she added, with a faint sigh, could we then speak of my dear Keith. And with that, swaying ever so little towards him, she gave him her hand. No, thought Ewan, as he went down the great staircase, but they might have spoken of him this afternoon, a great deal more than they had done. Lady Stowe had told him nothing, yet the shock of Keith's death, even to a mother's heart, must be a little softened after seven years. And what could it have mattered to her, whether or not he had been left out all night on a battlefield, and whether he were married or single? He concluded that fashionable ladies were strange creatures, and wondered what Alison would have made of the Countess of Stowe. Not far from the steps of Stowe House, when Ewan got into the square, there was waiting an extremely respectable elderly man, who somehow gave the impression of being in livery, though he was not. As Ardroy came towards him, he stepped forward, and, saluting him in the manner of an upper servant, asked very respectfully for the favour of a few words with him. "'Oh, certainly,' said Ewan. Oh, "'What is it that you wish to speak to me about?' "'Oh, I understand, sir,' said the man, "'that you are the gentleman that was with Major Wyndham when he was killed, "'and was telling my lady his mother how it happened. "'Oh, I am only a servant, sir, but if you would have the goodness—' I taught him to ride, sir, held him on his first pony, in the days when I was with Colonel Philip Wyndham, his father. And I was that fond of him, sir, and he always so good to me. Twas he got me the place in his lordship's household, and that I have still. And if, sir, you could spare me a moment to tell me of his end, among those murdering Highlanders. His voice was shaking, and his face, and the usually set, controlled face of a superior and well-trained servant, all quivering with emotion. Ewan was touched. Moreover, no chance of learning more of the friend about whom he really knew so little was to be lost. I'll come back with me to my lodging, he said, and I will tell you anything you desire to know. The man protested at first, but, on Ewan's insisting, followed him at a respectful distance to Half Moon Street. So yet another inmate of Stowe House came to the Vintners that day. The name of this one was Masters, and Ewan, bidding him sit down, told him the whole story. Oh, it must have been a terrible grief to Lady Stowe, he ended sympathetically, and was surprised to see a remarkable transformation pass over the old servant's saddened face. Oh, did her ladyship give you that impression, sir? Nay, I can see that she did. He hesitated, his hand over his mouth, and then broke out. Oh, I must say it, and just as to him, I must say it. And I'm not in her service, but in my lord's. Oh, Mr. Cameron, she never cared the snap of a finger for Mr. Keith, and when he was a boy it used near to break his heart, for he worshipped her, how lovely as she was. But twas my young lord she cared for when he came, 
and rightly, for he is a very sweet-natured young gentleman. Yet she had Mr. Keith's devotion before her second marriage, when he was her only son, and she took no heed of it, as she neglected him. Oh, I could tell you stories, sir. Oh, but tis better not, and he's dead now, my Mr. Keith, and few enough people in his life to appreciate him as they should have done. But if you did, sir, and that's a great thing for me to think of, and your being with him at the end, and too. Oh, might I look at that ring of his you spoke of, sir, if not asking too great a favour? Oh, thank you, thank you, sir. For Ewan had taken off Keith Wyndham's signet ring and put it into the old man's hand. And then he went to the window and stood looking out. He could not but believe the old servant. What he had told him interpreted the whole of this afternoon's interview. Lady Stowe had avoided speaking of Keith to him at any length, not from grief, but from indifference. He could hardly credit it, yet it must have been so, unless, perchance, it was from remorse. Well, now he knew what he thought of ladies of fashion. A oh, poor Keith, a oh, poor Keith. Masters, he said at last, without looking round, oh, since you knew him well. I will ask you to tell me something of Major Wyndham's young days. But not now. I hope, by the way, that he and Lord Aveling were upon good terms. Oh, very good, very good indeed, the old man hastened to assure him. My young lord admired Mr. Keith, I think, and Mr. Keith was fond of him, and there's no doubt, and though he teased him at times for being, as he said, as pretty as a girl. But my young lord took it in good part. It was he, young as he was then, that wanted to have Mr. Keith's body brought to England for burial, but her ladyship would not. Oh, may I give you back this ring, sir, and thank you for allowing me. He faltered, and, holding out the ring with one hand, sought hastily with the other for his handkerchief. End of section 19section 20 of the gleam in the north by d k broster this librivox recording is in the public domain read by eileen lochaber no more so smart a coach drawing up on tower hill this fine may morning soon drew a little crowd of idlers mostly small boys some shouting their conviction that it contained the lord mayor against others who upheld that the Prince of Wales would emerge from it. But the two gentlemen who presently stepped out did not fulfil either expectation. "'I've brought you to this spot, Mr. Cameron,' said the younger of the two in a lowered voice, "'that you may see for yourself how vain are any dreams of a rescue from that.' And Ewan, standing, as he knew, on perhaps the most blood-drenched spot in English history, and gazed at the great fortress prison whence most of those who had died here had come forth to the axe. And at the sight of it his heart sank, and though he knew Edinburgh Castle on its eagle's nest, and how the Bastille upreared its sinister bulk in the Faubourg Saint-Antoine at Paris. Oh, it is a bitter kindness, Lord Aveling, but it is a kindness, and I thank you. The young man motioned to him to enter the coach again, and they drove down to the entrance under the lion tower, where he would leave him. 
It was indeed a kind thought of the young lords, not only to bring him, on his father's behalf, the permit from Lord Cornwallis to visit Dr. Cameron, but also to carry him to the tower in his own coach. Yet, as Ardroy, showing the precious paper with a constable's signature, followed his conductor over the moat and under the archway of the middle tower, he felt how powerless, after all, were the very real friendship of the Earl of Stowe and his son, and all their prestige. Archibald Cameron was in a place whence it would take more than aristocratic influence to free him. At the third, the Byward Tower, his guide halted and informed him that he must be searched here, and led him to a room for that purpose. The officials were extremely civil and considerate, but they did their work thoroughly, taking from him every object about him, and in his pocket, save his handkerchief, his sword, as a matter of course, his money, a little notebook of accounts, and a pencil, even his watch. All, naturally, would be restored to him as he came out. Ewan rather wondered that he was allowed to retain his full complement of clothes, but he did not feel in spirits to make a jest of the affair. And then he heard, to his surprise, that Dr. Cameron was confined in the deputy lieutenant's own quarters, and that, therefore, he had little farther to go. Soon he found himself in a house within the fortress. In reality, the lodgings of the lieutenant of the tower, who occupied the rank next the constables in this hierarchy, but neither he nor the constable resided here. On one side this house looked out to the river, and on the other to the parade, Tower Green, and the chapel of St. Peter, and Ewan was told that it was by no means unusual for state prisoners to be confined in its precincts. Several of the Jacobite lords had been imprisoned here. And then he was suddenly in the presence of the deputy lieutenant himself, General Charles Rainsford, the soldier was as considerate as the rest, and even more courteous. His affability chilled Ewan to the core. Had the authorities seemed hostile or anxious? But no, they knew that once they were on their guard, no one escaped or was rescued from the Tower of London. You will find Dr. Cameron well, I think, sir, volunteered the deputy lieutenant. My orders are so strict that I cannot allow him out of doors even attended by a warder, to take the air. But, as he has two rooms assigned to him, he walks a good deal in the larger, and by that means keeps his health. How does he know that I am to visit him? He does, and has expressed the greatest pleasure at it. Oh, Mrs. Cameron is not yet arrived in London, I think. No, but the doctor expects her shortly. And, on that, the visitor was entrusted to a warder, and went with him up the shallow oaken stairs. They stopped before a door guarded by a private of the regiment of guards, and when it was opened Ewan found himself in a long, narrowish room, almost a gallery, at whose farther end a figure which had evidently been pacing up and down its length had turned expectantly. And they each hurried to the other, and for the first time in their lives embraced. Ewan could never remember what were the first words which passed between them, but, after a while, he knew that Archie and he were standing together in the embrasure of one of the windows, and that Archie was holding him by the arms, and saying, in a voice of great contentment, "'Ever since I heard that you were coming, I've been asking myself how in the name of fortune you contrived to get permission.' "'Oh, it was fortune herself contrived it,' answered his cousin, 
laughing a trifle unsteadily. That is indeed a fairy story of luck. I will tell you of it presently. Hobbit first, and he looked at him searchingly. Are you well, Archie? They told me you were, but are you? Oh, I, I'm wonderfully well, said the doctor cheerfully, and more, I am happy, which you don't ask me. I've done my duty, as well as I can, to my prince. I'm to have my dean's company for more than a week. None of the Privy Council nor any of the government is a whit the wiser for aught I've told them. And for the resolution which God has given me to die without enlightening them, and, I hope, with becoming firmness, I thank him every day upon my knees. You cannot think how well content I am, Ewan, now that there's no hope left to torment me. Ewan could not look at him then. Yet it was obviously true. One had only to hear the ring of quiet sincerity in Archibald Cameron's voice to know that this attitude was no pose. That was the wonder, almost the terror of it. Oh, but there is hope, there is hope, said Ewan, more to himself than to Archie. Meanwhile, is there not something you want? Yes, one thing I do stand in need of, and have displayed a good deal of impatience, I fear, because it is denied me, and that is paper and pen. You have not such a thing as a bit of old pencil about you, ill. Oh, I haven't a thing about me, save my pocket-handkerchief, answered Ewan regretfully. Oh, they took good care of that, out by. And why have they denied you writing materials? Oh, if I had but known, I might have smuggled in the pencil I had when I came, and some paper, perhaps, in my hat. Oh, as to that, I must be patient, said Archie with a little smile. And, indeed, I am no hand at composition, yet there are some matters that I desire to set down. Perhaps I'll contrive it, still. Oh, come, let me show you my other apartment, for I'd have you know that I'm honoured with a suite of them, and the other is indeed the more comfortable for a cedarant, though I please myself with a glimpse of the river from this room. Or tis low tide, I think. Ewan, following his gaze, saw without seeing the glitter of water, the tops of masts, a gay pennon or two, and a gull balancing on the wind. And then Archie put his hand on his arm and drew him into a smaller room, not ill-furnished, looking in the opposite direction, and they sat down on the window-seat. Yes, said the doctor, I fare very differently here from poor Alexander. I've been thinking much of late, of him and his sufferings. How oh, God rest him! It was long since Ewan had heard any reference to that third of the Lochiel brothers, who, by turning Roman Catholic and Jesuit, had cut himself off from his family, but who had been the first to die for the White Rose, a martyr to the horrible conditions on board the ship which brought him as a prisoner to London. Yes, went on Archie, this is a paradise compared to the place where Alexander was confined. Indeed, looking through the window by which they sat, one saw that May can come even to a prison. The pear trees on the wall below, which General Rainsford's predecessor had planted not so many years before, had lost their fair blossom by now, but below them was a little border of wallflowers, and Tower Green, at a short distance, deserved its name. On the spot, too, where the child queen had laid down her paper diadem after her nine days of rain, a little boy and girl were playing with a kitten. 
and your head, Ewan, asked his cousin after a moment's silence. How long was it before you recovered from the effects of that blow? I was greatly afraid at the time that your skull was fractured. Oh, it was you, then, who bound up my head. Oh, I thought it must have been. Oh, Archie, and by that the soldiers must have known for certain who you were. Oh, you should not have done it. Oh, tut, the Redcoats knew that already. And I could not accomplish much in the way of surgery. My dear Ewan, I had not the necessaries. As you may guess, I have not had a patient since. You will be my last. So take off that wig, in which you seem to me so unfamiliar, and let me see the spot where the musket butt caught you. Oh, there's not to see, I'm sure, and not much to feel, said Ewan, complying. Oh, my head is uncommon hard, as I proved once before. I was laid by for some weeks, and that is all, he went on, as the cool, skilful fingers felt about among his close-cropped hair. Oh, just when I naturally was afire to get to London after you. Oh, but now, when I'm here, there seems nothing that one can do. And, Archie, it is I have brought you to this place. Dr. Cameron had ended his examination, and now faced him with, Oh, my dear Ewan, I can, indeed, feel small trace of the blow. Yet it is clear that it must have severely shaken your wits, if you can utter such a piece of nonsense as that. Oh, it is not nonsense, protested Ewan sadly. Was it not I who discovered that thrice unlucky hut, and persuaded you to go into it? Oh, and I suppose it was you that surrounded the wood with soldiers from Inversnade. Oh, you might have brought them from somewhere nearer, for it was a most pestilent long tramp back there that night. Oh, nay, you'll be telling me next, and that twas you sent the information to Edinburgh. Oh, God, when I can find the man who did, began Ewan, in a blaze at once. Oh, my dear Ewan, said his kinsman soothingly, oh, leave him alone. To find him will not undo his work, whoever he is, and I have wasted many hours over the problem and am none the wiser. Oh, I had better spend the time thinking of my own shortcomings. Fret not thyself at the ungodly. Hut to sound advice, and believe me. I can forgive him. He may have thought he was doing a service. It will cost me more of a struggle to forgive the man who slandered me over the Loch Arke gold. But I think I shall succeed even in that before the 7th of June. Who was that man? demanded Ewan instantly, and all the more fiercely, because he winced to hear that date on Archie's lips. And the doctor shook his head with a smile. How oh, is it like I should tell you, when you ask in that manner? Oh, tis a man whom you have never met, I think, so let it pass. Is he known to me by name, however? Oh, how can I tell, replied Dr. Cameron shrewdly, unless I pronounce his name and see. Oh, but come, let's talk of other folk, better worth attention. And there are so many I should be glad to have tidings of. How is Mrs. Allison and the boys, especially my wee patient? And have you any news, since we parted, of your fellow prisoner in Fort William? Oh, poor Hector is over here in London, and in great distress, began Ewan without reflecting. For there's an ill rumour abroad, in Lil, at least, accusing him. And there he stopped, biting his lip. 
He ought not to have brought up that subject in Archie's hearing, a blundering fool that he was. Oh, accusing him of what, lad? So Ewan had to tell him. He hurried over the tale as much as he could, and, seeing how shocked and grieved Archie appeared, laid stress on the fact that, if ever Hector were really brought to book, he himself was in a position to disprove his connection with the capture of the Jacobite. Oh, but I would give much to know who set the story about, he ended, for there are only two persons whom he told of the loss of that letter, myself, and the man who helped him to return to his regiment in January, young Finlay Macfair of Glensheen. And it is almost incredible that he should have spread such a report. But the end of that sentence left Ardroy's lips very slowly. In fact, the last words were scarcely uttered at all. He was staring at his companion. Over Archie's face, at the mention of Finlay Macfair, there had flitted something too indefinable to merit a name. But in another moment, Ewan had reached out and caught him by the wrist. Oh, Archie, look at me. No, look at me. For Dr. Cameron had turned his head away almost simultaneously, and was now gazing out of the window and asking whether Ewan had seen the two bairns out there playing with a little cat. Ewan uttered an impatient sound and gripped the wrist harder. Oh, deny it if you dare, he said threateningly. Why, I've named your slanderer too. Oh, dear lad. Yes or no, demanded Ewan, as he might have demanded it of his worst enemy. The doctor was plainly rather chagrined as he faced him. Oh, I'm sorry that I've not better control of my features. Oh, now, for God's sake, Ewan. For Ardroy, releasing his wrist, had got to his feet. Ewan, I implore you not to take advantage of a secret which you have surprised out of me. But Ardroy was in one of his slow, white rages. Oh, the man who was associated with you when you risked your life for that accursed money in '49, was viper enough to traduce you over it. Oh, it was he, and then, who poisoned his cousin Lochdorney's mind against you. Oh, God's curse on him till the judgment day. And I warrant his dirty lie did not stop short with Lochdorney. How oh, did it now, Archie? Dr. Cameron, distressed, did not answer that. Oh, my dear Ewan, if I could persuade you to leave this question alone, oh, what does it matter now? Your good name matters to me as much as my own, said Ewan, towering and relentless. Oh, but tis all past history now, Ewan, and the slander will die with my death. Ewan, Ewan, promise me that you'll not go stirring up old scores with that young man. Oh, I cannot say I love him, but he is powerless to harm me any more now, and, as I say, I hope to forgive him without reservation. Oh, my dear lad, you will only cause me more distress than the lie itself, if I am to spend the short time which remains to me thinking of you quarrelling on my behalf with young Glensheen. Ewan had begun to stride up and down the little room, fighting with his resentment. How oh, very good, then, he said, after a moment, coming and sitting down again. I will not give you that distress. It is a promise. Moreover, 
Oh, perhaps this will reassure you a little, he added with a wrathful snatch of a laugh. Oh, the man is not in London now, I believe. Oh, then let's cease to waste time over him, said Dr. Cameron with evident relief. And you've not told me yet, as you promised, how you procured this order to see me. Trying to put away the thought of Glensheehan, Ewan told him. Had I not good fortune, though, indeed, at first, when I found myself in Stowe House, I thought it was the worst kind of ill luck which had befallen me. The Earl and his son were both at the King's bent that day, too, which prejudiced them, it is clear, in your favour. By the way, he added, with some hesitation, was it a surprise to you that you had no trial? No, replied his cousin. I always suspected that the government would make use of the old sentence of attainder if ever they caught me. Yes, perhaps it was inevitable, murmured Ewan, but he was thinking, though he did not mean to speak, of the unknown informer protected by the government whose identity, according to Jacobite belief, a trial would have revealed. Yes, I was not long before their lordships and the king's bent went on Archie. The Privy Council examination at Whitehall a month before was a more lengthy affair, but, I fear, a very unsatisfactory one to those honourable gentlemen. My memory was grown so extraordinarily bad, he added, with a twinkle in his eye. All the world knows that you told them nothing of the slightest importance, said Ewan admiringly. How was that how you contrived to outwit them? Oh, if you can call it outwitting. Oh, I think no man on earth could possibly have forgotten so many things as I made out to have done. And I admit that in the end their lordships lost patience with me, and told me squarely that, as I seemed resolved not to give any direct answers, which they assigned to a desire to screen others, and they did not think it proper to ask me any further questions. The remembrance seemed to entertain him. But before that came to pass, my lord Newcastle, saving his presence, had become like a very bubbly jock for fury and disappointment, because he thought that I was about to tell them that I had met the prince quite recently in Paris. Oh, I had met him recently, but it was not in Paris. They made great preparations for noting the date, and when I told them that it was in 1748, the Duke positively bawled at me, and that it was the height of insolence, insolence not to be borne with, until I had hard work to keep my countenance. Oh, it is sad, and no doubt blameworthy, to rouse such emotions in the great. And Archibald Cameron laughed a little laugh of genuine amusement. Oh, you know, Archie, said Ewan earnestly, or, more probably, you do not know, that popular feeling is very strongly stirred about you, and that remonstrances are preparing on all sides. And when Mrs. Cameron comes, if she has any intention of petitioning, oh, I expect she will desire to. Oh, poor Jean! How can I commend her to you, a little, ill? Oh, you do not need to. I was about to ask you where she is likely to lodge. Oh, near the tower, no doubt. I will tell her to leave her direction at the tower gates, that you can learn it, if necessary, and give me yours, that I may tell her of it. Oh, she may be lonely, poor soul. I doubt she will be allowed to stay here with me all day. And afterwards. It was Ewan who looked out at Tower Green this time, 
but more fixedly than Archie had done. For afterwards, he said, in a moment, if there is to be the afterwards, you mean, I will take Mrs. Cameron. He stopped, wrenched his fingers together for a second, and said, with great difficulty, oh, I cannot speak of that afterwards, Archie. Oh, I don't know how you can. Oh, if one could but push time back and be again as we used to be eight years ago. The sunshine out there makes me think of that fine spring in Lochaber, before Lochiel and you had staked everything on the sword that was drawn in summer at Glenfinnan. Oh, but even Donald, even Alexander, and did not pay as you are going to pay. Though, indeed, there's hope still, he added quickly. Dr. Cameron laid his hand on his. But I'm not unhappy, Eowan, he said, and gently. Eight years ago I'd done nothing for my prince. I do not know that I would change. Hector Grant was having a supper when Ewan walked in upon him that evening. Oh, at last, said Ardroy, throwing his hat upon a chair. And this is the second time that I've tried to find you today. And I have been seeking you, retorted Hector. Where were you? Oh, I've been in the tower, answered Ewan, and went and stood with his back turned and an elbow on the mantelpiece, and for a while said no more. After a moment, Hector rose and put a hand on his shoulder, also without a word. Oh, I see no hope of rescue, even by guile. I see no way in which any man's life can be given for his, said Ewan, after a long pause. Nothing but a reprieve can save him. But I do not think that he is hoping for one. Oh, I am, said the sanguine Hector, who had recovered from his emotion of the morning of the sentence. Oh, the government must soon be aware how widespread is the feeling in favour of it. And there was another silence. Oh, go on with your supper, said Ewan. I have a piece of news for you, meanwhile. From something which I learned from Archie, I think it may well have been young Glenshean who put about that slander on you concerning his capture. Hector showed no disposition to continue his forsaken meal. Dieu du ciel, what makes you think that? Because he was the man who vilified Archie himself over the matter of the Loch Archie treasure. But I don't suppose you know of that dirty and cowardly action. Archie did not tell me that it was he. I surprised it out of him. Yet, by the same token, Finlay McFair is quite capable of having traduced you. Hector frowned. Yes, and now that I come to think of it, he repeated that story about Dr. Cameron to me last January. Not to you, exclaimed Ewan in amazement. Why have you never told me? Well, it has only once come into my mind since we've been in London, and then I thought it would needlessly distress you. Archie has made me promise that I'll not make it an occasion of quarrel with Glensheehan, said Ewan, looking not at all like a man who had given so pacific an understanding. How otherwise, I would challenge him directly he returns to town, and make him withdraw his slander publicly. Oh, but I have not promised to abstain from making my injury a cause of quarrel, quoth Hector in tones of anticipation. When Mr. Macfair of Glensheehan is returned, will you come with me 
Ewan, and we will ask him a question or two. But Ewan, instead of replying, suddenly sat down at Hector's supper table and covered his face with his hands. End of section 20 Section 21 of The Gleam in the North by D. K. Bronster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Erin. Finlay MacFair is both unlucky and fortunate. 1. Wherever Ewan went during the next few days, the hard case of Dr. Cameron seemed to be the all absorbing topic of conversation and that among persons of no Jacobite leanings at all. Mrs. Wilson, when she encountered her lodger, could talk of nothing else, and reported the general feeling of her compeers to be much roused. At the half-moon, the public house at the corner of the street, she heard that quite violent speeches had been made. Indeed, she herself all but wept when speaking of the condemned man, with that strange inconsistency of people easily moved to sympathy, who would nevertheless flock in thousands to see an execution, and who, doubtless, would so flock to Tyburn on the appointed day to see the carrying out of the sentence against which they so loudly protested. Had, therefore, a name been mentioned, it would probably have been with tears of sensibility that Mrs. Wilson conducted to Ewan's little parlour, one day at the end of the week, a lady, very quietly dressed, who said, on hearing that Mr. Cameron was out, that she would await his return. Mrs. Wilson would have liked to indulge in visions of some romance or intrigue, but that the lady, who was somewhat heavily veiled, seemed neither lovely nor very young. Ardroy, when he came in a little later and was informed of her presence, was at no loss to guess who it was, and when he entered his room and found her sitting by the window with her cheek on her hand, he took up the other listless hand and kissed it in silence. The lady drew a long breath and clutched the strong, warm fingers tightly, and then she rose and threw back her veil. Under the bonnet her face appeared, lacking the pretty colouring which was its only real claim to beauty, but trying to smile. The brave face of Jean Cameron, whom Ewan had known well in the past, surrounded by her brood, happy in the highlands before the troubles less happy, but always courageous, in poverty and exile, after them. Oh, Ardroy! She bit her lip to fight down emotion. Oh, Ardroy, I've just come from him. He he looks well, does he not? And Ewan nodded. He says that he has not been so well for years. You know he suffered from ague all the winter, two years ago. But now... And they seem so kind and well disposed in that place. She seemed to shrink from naming the tower. Yes, he's in very good hands there, answered Ewan, and felt a shock run through him at the other interpretation, which might be wrested from his speech. And you think, do you not, that there is... But Mrs. Cameron could not bring out the little word which meant so much, and she bit her lip again, and harder. I think that there is a great deal of hope, madam, said Ewan gently, in his grave, soft voice. And now that you have come, there is even more than there was, for if you have any purpose of petitioning, all popular feeling, 
will be with you. Yes, I thought. I've been drawing up an appeal. She sought in her reticule. Or perhaps you would look at what I've roughly written. How tis here at the end. And into his hand she put a little paper-covered book. Opening it where it naturally opened, Ewan saw that it was a record of household accounts, and that on a page opposite the daily entries made at Lille, sometimes in English, sometimes in French, for bread or coffee, pain de sucre, or stuff for Margaret's gown, figured alien and tremendous words, majesty and life and pardon. I thought that when I'd made a fair copy, I would present the petition to the elector at Kensington Palace on Sunday. Yes, said Ewan, but you will need an escort. May I have the great honour? Mrs. Cameron gave a little exclamation of pleasure, soon checked. Archie tells me that you have got into serious trouble with the government on his account, or you should not show yourself in so public a place and with me. And no one would dream of looking for me at Kensington Palace. Moreover, I have someone to answer for me now, said Ewan, smiling down at her. And he told her about Lord Stowe. 2. When, that afternoon, Ewan had taken Jean Cameron back to her lodging in Tower Street, he went to the White Cock, where he had arranged to meet Hector Grant. But that young man was to be seen walking to and fro in the Strand itself, outside the passage, evidently waiting for him. Oh, don't go in there, Ewan, he said eagerly, till I have at least told you my news. A young Glen Sheehan is back in town, if he ever left it. How oh, are you sure? Oh, I've seen his gilly. I met him by chance about an hour ago. He said that his master had been ill, though I could not make out from him whether he had really been away from London or no. At any rate, the man, who recognized me, admitted that Glen Sheehan was able to receive visitors. It seems that he's recovering from a fever of cold, which settled upon his lungs. So now I can perhaps find out the part which Finlay Macfair has played in this slander upon me, for I'm no nearer the truth than when I arrived here. How will you come with me? Oh, I think you have a score to settle too. Oh, I promised not to settle it, answered Ardroy. And you, Hector, do not yet know that you have one. Oh, I'll be prudent promised the young soldier. Oh, I will move cautiously in the matter, I assure you, for Fionle Rua is not over-peaceable himself. But I must at least put the question to him, and what time better than the present, if you are at liberty? Ewan said that he was, and would accompany him, though he was not himself anxious to meet Archie's traducer, since he might not have his way with him. But it seemed unwise to let Hector go alone, and his presence might conceivably keep the bit a shade tighter in that young gentleman's mouth. At the house in Beaufort Buildings, Hector was prepared to find his way unannounced to the upper floor, but the woman this time said that she would take the two gentlemen up, since Mr. Macfair's servant was out, and she thought his master as well. Indeed, she seemed sure of the latter's absence, for she threw open the door with barely a knock, advanced into the room, and was consequently brought up short. "'Oh, I beg your pardon, sir,' she said in half-abashed tones. Oh, "'I quite thought you was out. Two gentlemen from Scotland to see you.' And there was visible, in a room less disorderly than Hector remembered, 
Mr. Finlay McFair sitting by a small fire fully dressed, with a large flowered shawl about his shoulders and a book in his hand. He turned his red head quickly. Well, I thought I'd given orders, he began with a frown, and then seemed by an effort to accept the inevitable. Well, visitors from Scotland are always welcome, said he, and rose, holding the shawl together. Why, tis rather a visitor from France. Is it not Mr. Hector Grant? Hector bowed. And my brother-in-law, Mr. Cameron of Ardroy. Ewan, let me present to you Mr. Macfair of Glenshean. Oh, the gentleman, I think, who went to prison in order to shield Dr. Cameron last autumn, said Glenshean, and held out his hand. I'm honoured to make your acquaintance, sir, very greatly honoured. Be seated, if you please, gentlemen, and forgive my being happed up in this fashion. I'm still somewhat of a sick man after a recent illness. Mr. Macfair was easy and fluent, and apparently more concerned with apologies for his shawl than observant, which was perhaps as well, for the man whose acquaintance he professed to be so proud to make was gazing at him in what would have been a disconcerting manner had young Glensheehan been fully aware of it. Hector took a chair and said that he was sorry to hear of Mr. Macfair's indisposition. Ewan also seated himself, more slowly, but he said nothing. The cloaked gentleman who had come so secretly out of Mr. Pelham's house that May night was here before him, and he was no Whig, but Finlay Macfair, the son and heir of a great chief whose clansmen had fought for the cause. Oh, what had he been doing in Arlington Street? Yes, said young Glensheehan, going to a cupboard. I had the ill luck to take a cold at the Carnival Ball in Paris, for I was over there on the King's Affairs in the spring which ended in a fluxion de poitrine, and left me with somewhat of a cough and a general weakness. I doubt I shall not be my own man again for a while. Now, gentlemen, before you tell me why I am thus honoured by your company, you'll pledge me, I hope, in this excellent Bordeaux. Oh, but where the devil has Shemus put the glasses? His guests, however, both refused the offer of the Bordeaux with so much decision and unanimity that Finlay, raising his eyebrows, left the cupboard and came and sat down. Huh, not even to drink the king's health, he observed. Well, gentlemen, if you will not drink, let us get to business, unless this is a mere visit of ceremony. No, tis not a visit of ceremony, Mr. Macfair, answered Ewan gravely. Mr. Grant has a question to ask of you, which you will greatly oblige him by answering. And I, too, Find that I've one which, by your leave, I should like to put when you have answered his. How this sounds, I declare, like an examination before the Privy Council, remarked young Glensheehan, his lip drawing up a little. Oh, pray proceed then, sirs, each in your turn. You'll allow me, I hope, the liberty of not replying, if I so wish. Nay, Mr. Macfair, do not imagine that we come as inquisitors, said Hector with unwanted suavity. It will be of your courtesy only that you reply. Ask, then, said Finlay, fixing his piercing light eyes upon him. Even Hector hesitated for a second, choosing his words. Mr. Macfair, while eternally grateful to you for your assistance in procuring my return to France last January. He paused again, seeing in those eyes something akin to the sudden violent resentment 
with which their owner had at first greeted the subject on that occasion, then went on. I should nevertheless be glad of your assurance that you did not, by pure inadvertence, let it be somewhat freely known that I had lost, along with my other papers in the Highlands, the compromising cipher letter of which I told you. There was no outburst from Glen Sheehan, but all and more of his native arrogance in his reply. Oh, certainly I did not, he said contemptuously. Why should I speak of your private affairs, Mr. Grant? They are nothing to me. Hector bit his lip. Why, thank you for the assurance, Mr. McFair. Yet that letter was hardly a private affair, and, and the knowledge of the loss of it has undoubtedly gone about and has much damaged my reputation, especially in my regiment. Well, I am very sorry to hear that, Mr. Grant, responded his host, pulling his shawl about him and crossing his legs. But you must forgive me if I say that to lose a paper of that nature could hardly be expected to enhance it. At the half-amused, half-hortatory tone, Ewan fully expected Hector to flare up. But that young man remained surprisingly controlled and answered, though with rather pinched lips. Yet the strange thing is that I told no one save Mr. Cameron and yourself that I had lost it. Fjolle Rua turned his dangerous gaze on Mr. Cameron. Oh, I suppose he has satisfied you that he is not the culprit, he asked, again in that half-humorous tone. To this Hector vouchsafed no reply, and apparently Glensheehan did not expect one, for he went on. Oh, but surely, Mr. Grant, if a letter such as you told me of were sent upon capture into the English government, as is natural, you could scarcely accept them to be so tender of your reputation as not to let it be known upon whom it was captured. Aye, but was it sent to the government? demanded Hector. Glensheehan's haughty head went back. And pray how do you expect me to know that? Ewan leant forward. It was the same man. After this prolonged scrutiny, he felt sure of it. Oh, that is indeed an idle question, Hector, he observed, and Mr. McFair has assured you that he had no hand in spreading the knowledge of your misfortune, which assurance no doubt you accept. I think the moment has come for me to ask my question, if he will be good enough to answer it. Oh, I hope yours is less offensive than the last, rapped out Glensheehan. I am afraid it is not very pleasant, admitted Ardroy, and I must crave your indulgence for putting it. I should wish to learn how it is, Mr. McFair, that you know Mr. Pelham so well as to leave his house in Arlington Street between eleven and twelve at night. Oddly enough, it was Hector, not young Glensheehan, who appeared most affected by the shot. What? he exclaimed. And do you mean to say that Mr. McFair was the man you saw that night? But Mr. McFair himself was frowning at his questioner in an angry and puzzled astonishment which seemed genuine enough. Mr. Pelham, sir, he said sharply. Whom do you mean? And you cannot, I imagine, refer to Mr. Pelham the Minister of State. Yes, said Ewan unperturbed. I do. Mr. Henry Pelham, my Lord Newcastle's brother. And as you leave his house so late at night, I conclude that you must know him very well. Now young Glensheehan pushed back his chair, his eyes glittering. You are crazy as well as infernally insulting, Mr. Cameron of Ardroy. I do not know Mr. Pelham even by sight. 
Then why were you coming out of his house that night? pursued Ardry. You were speaking Earth to your servant, who was carrying a link. I happened to be passing, and by its light I saw enough of your face and hair to recognize you. Perhaps you had quite legitimate business with Mr. Pelham, but it would be less disquieting if we knew what it was. The young chief had jumped to his feet, the shawl sliding to the ground. His expression was sufficiently menacing. Hector, all attention, had sprung up too, and was now at Ewan's side. "'Do you imagine,' said Glensheehan, between his teeth, "'that we are in Lochaber, Mr. Cameron, "'and that you can safely come the bully over me and the two of you? "'I thought the late Lochiel had tried to civilize his clan. "'It seems he had not much success. "'I tell you that I do not know Mr. Pelham "'and have never been inside his house. "'And God damn you to hell,' he added, in an excess of fury. "'How dare you put such a question to me?' "'Because,' answered Ewan unmoved, "'I desired to find out who was the man "'who came out of Mr. Pelham's house "'on the night of the 15th of May. "'A red-haired, earth-speaking man as like you, Mr. McFair, "'as one pea is like another.' "'I'd like to know,' broke in Finlay bitterly. "'Why, if you see a red-headed Highlander "'coming out of an English minister's door, "'you must jump to the conclusion "'not only that he is a Jacobite "'playing fast and loose with his principles, "'but that it is the future chief of Glensheehan, "'a man who has lain near two years in the tower "'for Jacobitism. <laughs> "'If it were not so amazing in its impudence. "'You mean that I am to consider myself mistaken?' "'I do indeed, Mr. Cameron, "'and before you leave this room, "'you'll apologize for your assumption "'in any words I choose to dictate. "'Of oh, faith!' I'm not sure that an apology, even the humblest, is adequate. And here, if the assumption in question were mistaken, Ewan agreed with him. I'm quite ready to apologize, Mr. McFair, he said, if you'll prove to me that I was wrong. On my soul, I'm only too anxious that you should. Or if you will convince me that your clandestine business with the elector's chief minister was such as an honourable man of our party might fairly have. "'And who made you a judge over me?' cried Finlay the Red, and his left hand went to his side, gripping at nothing, for he was not wearing his sword. Then he flung out the other in a fiery gesture. "'I'll have that apology, by heaven. You'll be only too ready to offer it when you hear my secret.' "'If you tell me that your errand to Mr. Pelham's house,' began Ewan. "'For God's name!' broke out the angry MacFair. Am I to shout it at you that I never went there? He went, I don't doubt, and you saw him coming out. I suppose, therefore, that I should not have been so hot with you just now. You'll pardon me for that when you hear. And perhaps you'll pardon me if I sit down again. I'm still weakly. Indeed, he was palish, and there was moisture on his brow. Be seated again, gentlemen, and I will tell you both why Mr. Cameron thought he saw me coming out of the minister's house one night. A night, too, when, if he had inquired, he would have found that I was not in London. The visitors somewhat doubtfully reseated themselves, Hector frowning tensely on their host, but content to leave the weight of the business for the moment on Ardroy's shoulders, where Mr. Macfair himself seemed to have put it. The explanation, said Glensheehan, coughing a little and picking up his shawl, is that I have, to my sorrow, a double 
A double, exclaimed Ewan, raising his eyebrows. How do you mean a man who resembles you? I, a man who so resembles me that even my close acquaintance have been deceived. He dogs my path, Mr. Cameron, and I get the credit of his ill deeds. He can even imitate my hand of right. But who, who is he? Young Glenshian shrugged his shoulders. Some by-blow of my father's, I must believe. And that, no doubt, since I never heard of the chief's recognizing him, or doing aught for him, has led him to take this method of revenge by bringing discredit, when he can, upon my good name. For tis not, as you may guess, a pleasant secret for a man of honor to unveil, and I must be glad that I'm dealing with gentlemen. You hardly called us that a while ago, retorted Ewan, knitting his brow. Had he been mistaken that night, in the quick passing glare of the torch? If he had been, then he was wronging young Glenshean even more deeply than young Glenshean had wronged Archie. Hector's voice, silent for some time, broke in. Is it not possible, Mr. McFair, it said, that this discreditable double of yours counts for something in my affair? And how could that be? asked Finlay, with a shade of contempt. I hold no communication with him. He has not access to my papers. Your papers, said Hector, like lightning. If he had had access, you mean that he might know something of my laws? By heaven, Mr. McFair, I believe you have communicated the circumstances of it to someone. For a second, a very strange look had slid over Glenshean's features. He drew himself up under the shawl. Allow me to say, Mr. Grant, that I am heartily tired of this inquisition about the damned letter over which you make such a pother. I wish I'd never been so weak as to listen to your woeful tale. But I can hold my tongue with any man on earth, and my friends would tell you that I am incapable of setting about anything resembling a slander. Ewan could not let it pass. He had sworn not to make it a subject of quarrel, but he could not let it pass. If you search your memory, Mr. McFair, he said meaningly, I am afraid that you will find that is not true. I have it on the best authority that it was you who put about the slander concerning Dr. Cameron and the Loch Arking treasure. How slander, queried Finlay, with an undisguised sneer. Oh, my dear Mr. Cameron, and the fact that the unfortunate gentleman is shortly to suffer for his loyalty, which we must all deplore, does not make my statement a slander. And upon my soul, your presumption in coming here to take me to task, first for one supposed action, and then for another, is... He seemed unable to find a word to satisfy him. But by the God above us, if we were alone in the highlands, or somewhere quiet... He did not finish, but gritted his teeth. "'I'm not going to quarrel with you over it,' said Ewan very sternly. "'At least not now. Perhaps some day we may argue as to the ethics of your conduct, in the Highlands or elsewhere. For the moment I'll say no more than that the action of traducing an innocent and scrupulously honourable man of your own party is worthy of this unnamed shadow of yours in whom you invite me to believe.' Oh, but surely, Ewan, broke in Hector, suddenly pushing back his chair. You're not taken in by that cock-and-bull story of a double. Why, a child. He stopped, 
and involuntarily glanced behind him as a mild crash announced that his abrupt movement had overturned some small article of furniture and on seeing that this was a little table with some books upon it he got up with a muttered apology to set it on its legs again having no wish to give mr macfair a chance to reflect upon his breeding such a tale might deceive a child he went on meanwhile picking up the fallen books and some papers which had accompanied them to the floor but not a groan he gave a great gasp and was silent ewan whose attention had been withdrawn from hector's little mishap to the remarkable agitation which it had caused in their host looked round once more to see the reason for the sudden cessation of his brother-in-law's remarks hector was standing rigid staring at a paper which he held as if he could not believe his senses and glensheehan glensheehan the invalid was flinging himself like a wild beast out of his chair give me that he shouted my private papers how dare you hector got quickly between them what is it what is it hector hector looked at him with a livid dazed face my stolen letter is here in his own possession it fell out from these books he had it all the time stand aside ewan and let me get at him no he's not worth steel i'll wring the treacherous neck of him will you rang out glensheehan's voice breathless yet mocking behind ardry you'll lose a little blood first i fancy he had snatched up his sword from somewhere got between the winged chair in which he had been sitting and the corner of the hearth and was awaiting them a flush on his pale face and his lips drawn back over his teeth a real wolf at bay oh, i suppose you'll need to come on both at once to give each other courage ewan gripped at hector's shoulder but fury had lent that young man the agility of an eel he slipped past ardroy and his sword came out with a swish oh, keep the door you lest we be interrupted he cried pushed aside the chair and next moment was thrusting frantically at the man backed against the wall himself shocked and revolted ewan rushed to the door and locked it but ran back at once crying now oh, hector stop this is madness to have hector either wounded by or wounding young glensheehan here in a brawl in a london house would be disastrous moreover by the vigour of his assault it looked as if more than wounding was in mr grant's mind and that would be more disastrous still ardroy's protest went entirely disregarded he might not have been there glaring at each other the two combatants thrust and parried without pause steel clicking upon steel with a celerity rarely heard in a school of arms but glensheehan was already panting and the sweat was running in little rivers down his face oh stop in god's name cried ewan again oh, the man's ill remember hector for all response the young officer unexpectedly cut over his opponent's blade and all but got him in the chest and ewan in despair tugged out his own sword with the intention of beating up both blades but that was not easy to do without exposing one of the duelists to a thrust from the other and if another method he seized hector the nearer by the shoulder and dragged him away 
Guan Xian would almost certainly rush at his adversary and run him through during the operation. So Yuan dropped his own sword and snatched up the heavy shawl which had fallen from the convalescent's shoulders, and then, waiting his opportunity, flung it unfolded over its owner's head, seized his brother-in-law by the collar and swung him away staggering, and rushing in, at no small risk to himself, upon the entangled young man against the wall, who, almost screaming with rage, was just freeing himself, he seized him round the body, pinning his arms to his sides so that his still-held sword was useless. And behind him, Hector, cursing him now, was evidently preparing to come on again, and Ewan was by no means sure that he might not find his excited point in his own back. But from Finlay McFair there was a most unlooked-for end of resistance. His objurgation ceased, his head fell back, and his knees gave, the sword in his hand went clattering to the uncarpeted floor. He would have followed it had not Ewan held him up. Hector, breathing hard, came to a standstill. "'Where have you wounded him?' demanded Ewan. Oh, "'I haven't touched the filthy carrion,' answered Hector, inexpressibly sulky. "'You prevented me. I'll curse you. Why the devil?' "'Then it is merely exhaustion,' said Ewan. "'Oh, here, help me lift him to the bed, or that chair. He's swooning.' "'Oh, shamming, more like,' said Hector disgustedly. Oh, put him on the floor. Oh, I'd say throw him out of the window. But that... Oh, very well. He came to lend a hand, for big and powerful as Ewan was, the now completely unconscious Glenshean was neither small nor light. They carried him with little ceremony to the bed in the corner and dumped him on it. Ewan leant over him for a moment, shrugged his shoulders and left him there, merely observing. He said he had not recovered of his illness. How luckily for him was Hector's comment. The two stood looking at each other in the middle of the room. Oh, I cannot believe it, said Hector, out of breath and still a trifle livid. Oh, but here's the letter. He pulled it out of his pocket. Oh, I knew my own writing in an instant. Oh, but what should he want with it? And how did it get into his hands? Oh, we do not know yet what he wanted with it, answered Ewan gropingly. As to the way in which it came to his hands, how oh, he may have got it from Mr. Pelham. Oh, you don't believe that tale of a double, of course. Oh, not now. Ewan put his hand over his eyes. Oh, Hector, as you say, it is incredible. It's like a dark, dark passage, and one cannot see where it leads. I'm a fair of Glensheen. I'm going to see if there are more papers of the sort, said Hector, beginning to rummage feverishly among the books which he had tumbled to the floor. Ewan came to his assistance, but the little pile of volumes, most of them French and indecent, had evidently not been used as a hiding place, nor indeed would they have made a good one. A few bills had been pushed underneath or between them, and with the bills, by some extraordinary inadvertence, Hector's stolen letter. Oh, look at your letter again, suggested Ardroy, and see if it bears traces of what hands it has been in. Hector studied it anew. Yes, the names have been deciphered, sometimes with queries. And on the back, see, are some words in pencil. And you will please to return this when you have finished with it. 
but they're not signed. Well, the question is, said Ewan reflectively, whether Mr. Pelham handed over the letter to Glen Sheehan, for whatever purpose, or whether Glen Sheehan sent it to him in the first instance. Yes, that is the question. And how, in the latter case, did it first come into Glen Sheehan's hands? Dark and slippery paths, indeed, such as Archie had hinted at last autumn. Ewan looked round the room, and there was a writing desk in one corner. Should they break it open? The key, no doubt, was on that limp, unstirring figure on the bed, but Ewan, at least, could not bring himself to search for it there. Hector was apparently less troubled with scruples or repugnance. He went and stooped over it, and came back not with keys, but with a pocket-book, and pulled the contents out onto the table. "'Have more bills,' said he. "'A paper of accounts. An assignation, or what looks like it. A letter in cipher, addressed to Mr. Alexander Jeanson. Oh, who is he? How oh, tis probably an alias. And—' Oh, hello, here's a letter from Lil. He caught it up, ran his eyes over it, uttered a sound as if he had been stabbed to the heart, and handed it to Ewan. And Ewan read, Oh, Lil, February 15th, 1753. I shall punctually attend to the recommendation which you sent me by the young gentleman from Troy, and should it come to pass that my namesake is taken, I'll contrive that the loss which that gentleman has sustained shall serve as a cloak to cover Pickle, to whom commend me. C.S. Oh, I don't understand, said Ewan, puzzled. Who signs C.S.? Is it a pretended letter from the prince? Who is Pickle, and who is the young gentleman from Troy? Myself, answered Hector in a suffocated voice. Is not my name a Trojan one? And C.S. I know his writing— he has but reversed his initials, and see the reference to my namesake's capture. Is that Fox Samuel Cameron of my regiment, to whom, to oblige Glen Sheehan there, I took a letter in January? Oh, the very letter, probably, that told him of my loss, which Glen Sheehan had just learned from me. Was there ever such infamy, double infamy? He glared at the bed, and he made me his cat's paw made me, myself, the instrument of what may yet be my ruin. Oh, I think I'll... But Ewan, as white as a sheet, was gripping his arms with vice-like strength. Hector, let's go. Let's go. A terrible thought has just come to me, and if I stay, I, too, shall be tempted to run my sword through him. Oh, God preserve us both from murdering a senseless man. Oh, come, come quickly. Oh, but... What ails you? What is it, your thought? Ewan shuddered and began to drag at him. Oh, come. He glanced at the bed in a kind of horror. Oh, I saw him move. He's coming to himself. He unlocked the door, still with the same nervous haste, and only just in time to avert suspicion, for steps were hurrying up the stairs. A thin, pale young man, who seemed a servant, stopped at the top on seeing the two gentlemen in the doorway. Hector kept his head. We were just about to seek assistance for your master, Shemus, he said in Gallic. He has had some kind of fainting fit, and we have laid him on his bed. 
and the gilly uttered an inarticulate cry and rushed past them. Exclamations of grief and of endearment in the same tongue floated out through the open door. We need not stay to listen to that, said Hector scornfully, and the dog will recover to do fresh mischief. But when he does... Oh, I think he has done the worst he can ever do, said Ewan almost inaudibly, as they went down the stairs, and he put a shaking hand to his head as though he had received a physical shock. Oh, that was his gilly, whispered young Grant when they were outside. Did you recognize him as the man who held the torch last night? Instantly, answered Ardroy, who had a strange look, as of a man sleepwalking. Oh, but it needed not that. But that was not the first time his master had come out of that door. Oh, Hector, Hector, now I know, I think, on whose account it was that Archie had no trial. For, whether Finlay Macfair himself, or the unknown man who sent the information to Edinburgh from Glenbucky, be the pickle whom Samuel Cameron, of Archie's own clan and regiment, has slandered you to shield. There is not a doubt that the centre of the black business is Finlay. A Macfair and a chief's son. God help us all. Is there no faith or loyalty left, save in the tower? End of section 21